FIFA sort of screwed the pooch a little bit on this one. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCourt. Rescue Me sang Fontella Bass and after a round of international football that was about as interesting as any movie starring Nicolas Cage, football fans around the world can relate. Fortunately for them, the leagues of Europe are back this weekend and they come with more action than a night out with Keith Faz. Here to talk about all of that and more is Paddy Higgs. Hello. Lewis Ambrose. Hey. And Andre Gonzalez. Hello. With the Nicolas Cage diss out of the way... Let's get straight to the business at Can hand. I just say, a little bit unfairly, to be honest. Yeah. Con Air and uh, The Rock are fine movies. Really? Yeah. He's just so dreary. Oh, he is now, but, and you know. one-dimensional. Yeah, but he's had some good movies. That one in Las Vegas was good. What was that one? Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give him that one. Yeah. We won't talk about the Shawshank Redemption, though. Sure. No, he wasn't in that. <laughs> he wasn't in the Shawshank. <laughs> he wasn't in that, but... We just had a little pre-pod discussion about my uh, my thoughts on the Shawshank Redemption and how it's one of the most overrated movies of all time. Yep. It only says it all. Yeah. yeah. It speaks for itself. Yeah, it does, it Lewis, it was Big Sam's first game in charge of the big team and he won. Yeah, they look like a completely different side. <laughs> not, not quite eh, with 11 of, the, 11 of the players that started that game against Iceland uh, um, what did yeah. you make of it all? Um, it was pretty much the same old uh, England played against a fairly defensive team couldn't figure out how to move the ball to get around said defensive team and got a bit of fortune at the end of the game to win 1-0 so that's it. Well, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's about it, as dry as their performance, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't ninety minutes to inspire thoughts of a new era of England. Wayne Rooney's still walking around in midfield, not really knowing what he should do in midfield. It's a little bit disheartening to hear the manager after the game asked why Wayne Rooney played in midfield and answer, "Well, Wayne Rooney can sort of play where he likes." It doesn't seem like a good idea, to be completely honest. Um, it doesn't get the best out of everyone else. The The midfield is sort of a mess. Raheem Sterling's been in great form for Manchester City, but looked like the player that we saw again last season, a bit aimless. Harry Kane looked like Harry Kane does for England without any sort of support around him, completely isolated. Uh, Adam Lallana does actually add some impetus for England, weirdly. I'm not sure why, because he doesn't do it all that often for Liverpool. But he does look like one of England's better players whenever he does play. There were no troubles at the back, but if you're struggling that much to break down Tomo and Slovakia, then you're in for another couple of dull years of qualifying, I think. Andre, you watched it as well. Was it as dull for you? Yeah, uh, exactly what Louis said. And uh, you forgot about me- about one thing that was important. Uh, England played against a 10-man team for a while, and uh, we didn't see any difference in, in uh, on the pitch. And uh, yeah, it was it was lucky. The last in the last second, um, there was a goal. But besides that, we didn't see any change from the past, and that's a bit disturbing, right? Yeah, it is. The, like you say, there was the last couple of minutes. There was a bit more of a rush to goal. There was the goal itself. Walcott had a goal disallowed, which he was in an offside position. You could debate whether or not it was actually offside, but. At the end of the day, it's come from a defender passing him the ball. If the goal did count, it's 
England didn't create anything. They didn't create any chances. Uh, yeah, against the ten man Slovakia, and there were some efforts, but they were from long range. Just no idea how to work the ball around a deep defence. Are we not perhaps being a little impatient in that it is obviously the first game under, under Allardyce? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, you can't expect drastic changes, oh, yeah. you know, um, from from the first moment. But I, I would expect a friendly before uh, kicking yeah. off. Seriously. Sure, sure. It would make sense to yeah. play a friendly. No, yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the the most disheartening thing is probably Rooney in midfield and then his comments on it after the game. I mean, he said in his press conference before the game, you know, it, and we know what the English media are like with England managers, it would have been a really easy way after the summer to win over the press straight away is to not just not play Rooney there. And he said before the game, Rooney wouldn't play there. And then Rooney does play there. And then he doesn't even give a reason after the game. He's asked live on ITV and just says, oh, it's Wayne Rooney, you can go where he likes. Yeah, it is the worst reason <laughs> ever. Well, uh, let let uh, me read the comments in full. He said, this is the most decorated outfield player in England. It's not for me to say where he's going to play. It's up to me to ask whether he's going to do well in that position and contributing. If so, great. Surely it's the point of the manager to tell him where he's going to <laughs> yes. play. I, I thought I thought so. If Apparently not, not, but if yeah. it's not down to Sam Allardyce to tell his players where to play, then who is it down to? I mean, Allardyce has had a, a, probably a series of strange comments since taking on the job, to be honest, and also a couple of strange off-field move, movements to try and change the culture by bringing in a couple of comedians to uh, liven yeah. up the uh, <laughs> the team mood. Um, I mean, it, Hodgson doesn't exactly look like a, a you know a prison warden, but he's been painted as one um, since. Allardyce has, has come in, so um, it remains to be seen if any of those changes make any difference. Can anybody give a an explanation as to why he might have made these comments about Rooney? Um, personally, just the the defensive nature of the comments. Correct. I sound like a man who thinks he's already under pressure. Yeah. He already has to somehow, or, or he feels like he's being picked on already. If you come out in your press conference before the game, you know there's something that the fans, the media didn't like from the summer. They ask if it's going to continue under a new manager. You say it isn't, and then you do it anyway. Then you are going to be under pressure because you've just completely lied to everyone. <laughs> Things were so similar to what we saw um, in Euro yeah. 16 that at some point I was uh, expecting Kane to uh, take a set pieces. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> me, me and Andrew were watching it, um, and, and the board did go out for a corner a couple of times. Andrew was waiting for Kane to baby steps. He's not taking corners. Okay, <laughs> uh, it's positive. It's all up from here. Okay, well, Michael Cox of Zonal Marking was making the point that with his clever runs, his movement, and the way he links play efficiently, and of course his goal, Adam Lallana should be the man that Allardyce builds his team around. Does anybody make of that? I have to say, I don't see it in Adam Lallana. <laughs> Maybe I don't watch enough of him, but I don't see it why he sh- he would be a man to build an England team around. I th- I think Lallana's pretty easy on the eye, and uh, especially when Jack Wilshere isn't playing, which he shouldn't be at the moment for England. He's not playing club football. Um, Lallana's the only player who gets the ball and changes the pace of the game immediately. He's on the front foot. He accelerates with his first touch pretty much every time, and I think that's why uh, why people would see it like that. He's something different from an England player, but I think he's he's not something you can build around because I think he's much more maverick than that. Um, and this was Lalana's first goal in twenty seven international appearances. It's not like <laughs> England play world beaters every every international break. He played almost the the whole of the last qualifying campaign. He plays in attacking midfield and hadn't scored. He's not going to be reliable enough 
to build a team around him, but I think he's a brilliant option for England and probably more important for England than he is for Liverpool. Lewis saying Adam Lallana is easy on the eye when Lewis looks pretty much like Adam Lallana in, in, in person is uh, a little bit suspicious, to be honest. Yeah. If any of you are in Berlin, there's a particular election photo that every time it's I go by, it looks not just me. like Lewis. Oh, okay, good. No, there's one really that looks apparently like looks like me, looks nothing like me. He might have a bit of ginger. Yeah, it's just everyone at one football is yeah. running for election. <laughs> <laughs> right, I have a question for all of you. It's a slightly more general question. Why do you think that the players who perform on a high level on a consistent basis for their club, I'm talking about England players, look like they've never played football before as soon as they pull on an England jersey? I'm, I'm principally thinking of, say, somebody like Raheem Sterling, who's been excellent for City this season. I think he's got a couple of goals, a couple of assists, yet looks like it's his first time ever. Yeah, I Can think anybody it, explain that? Is it just pressure? Is there more to it no, than that? I, no, I think it's, it's l- lack of managing. It's yeah. the system. It's yeah. the Gu- Guardiola... To use that example, Guardiola uses his players in a way that he knows he'll get everything out of them. Sterling's good at dribbling, so we'll keep the ball in midfield and make sure Sterling has a load of one-on-ones. England move the ball slowly, it gets out to Sterling and there are already three men around him, two men around him, and there are no options to pass to. Um, Harry Kane's another one, and watching watching the England game against Slovakia the other day, especially with Rooney so deep, Kane was just completely isolated and... Mm. There's nothing he can do about it. And at Spurs, he's got three attacking midfielders always right behind him. They're moving. They're not just staying wide. They're coming central. He drifts out wide and someone takes his place in the middle. And there's just none of that. There's no sort of... It, it looks like they've never played together. It look, they've all played before, but it looks like they've never been told or they don't know how to play together. Yeah, to be honest, the only players have looked exceptionally comfortable in their positions over the last couple of years for England have been the central defenders, whoever that may be, because yeah. you literally just have to defend. You know, even the, you know, the goalkeeper's always going to be under pressure because that's an England tradition. Um, <laughs> also, so I was making the odd howler. As, as Lewis just said, it's putting square pegs in round holes. Um, it just doesn't suit their roles yeah. as they play it for club level, which is different to a lot of other... Um, I mean, Germany had a little bit of problem with this during the Euros, but generally speaking, all the better international teams play to their strengths and England do not. Do, I think do England have a strength. Do England have a way of playing football that two or three clubs in England use and then it can be transported easily to the national team? I mean, now we see Barcelona and Real Madrid, not so much under Zidane, but certainly they keep the ball. They attack. It's attacking football. And you look at Germany now and Bayern and Dortmund play very similar ways. And in England, we don't seem to have any of that. No, that's a good point. I think that's due to a lack of English players, though. And the fact that they would in, that the Premier League invests so heavily in overseas players rather than, say, in youth development. What would where an English you could... style of football be? What is it? Well, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> there's never, I guess there's never been a really huge well, unifying style in the same way that, say, Barcelona. Maybe not, say, say since the 1990s or something like yeah, that, yeah, when yeah. it was very, you know, workmanlike but effective. Yeah, direct. Yeah, with a couple of flair players like right. Gascoigne that could make but, things But happen. more investment in youth would allow them to set in a system from a young age that all the players can embed into. Yeah, I think they're trying to do that. I think it's going to take a while for it to take hold. <laughs> most, most teams in, a, in the Premier League, they, they have no idea how to um, group players. They, yeah. they don't grow players. It's just no, they don't no. have the patience and the, and the ability to do it. But I think it starts even younger. I think yeah. if we look at Eric Dyer, who obviously was educated football in Portugal, and Eric Dyer gets the ball and he seems to, he knows where to pass. He knows 
where to look for a pass. There should be a guy there through the lines and I can get play going again. And in England, it's like pass to the guy who isn't being marked, regardless of where he's standing. <laughs> it's, 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 it is a bit like that. Yeah, it, it, there's no sort of positional play. Yeah. There's no real strategic passing of the ball. Um, and I think that's probably the education of players from a younger age than even breaking into the first team. Can't argue with that. Um, England aren't the only man with a new man, a new manager. Andre, Spain also have a new one. Yeah. First uh, of all, how do we pronounce his name? Lopetegui. Lopetegui? Yeah, it's okay. a Basque name. Okay. You probably remember him uh, from the good old days as a goalkeeper. You're flattering my memory. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. As long so, yes. as you have no follow-up questions, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. How did he get on? Well, they won 8-0, eight, eight so that's that's decent. Uh, yeah, against Liechtenstein. Um, but um, what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> they, no. can't, they can't beat Germany when they're playing Liechtenstein, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, it it uh, it was a very interesting match because uh, we can uh, actually spot some uh, uh, new uh, interesting things in in the team. Oh yeah. Um, for for starter, right now. There's an idea of the the, the tactics is going to be four three three, and uh, I don't think that Lopetegui is going to change that. Uh, with uh, Del Bosque, he changed the tactics quite often, uh, depending on the players on the, the available there there were available at the time, and um, he played a lot of times without a real nine. With Lopetegui, I don't th- I'm not seeing that happening. Uh, he's going to play with uh, either Morata or or the Costa up front. And that's a big difference considering uh, the typical style of a Spanish team in the, I would say, five to ten in the last years. Yeah, easily. They change a lot. And um, there are some players that are, that are coming back and they're taking a big role on, in the teams, uh, particularly Koke. Koke is playing and is going gonna, gonna to be a key um, player in in this Spain, I can see them playing with um, Iniesta, um, Busquets, and Coque um, at the same time. But there's a lot of uh, quality coming from the under 21s in the future. And uh, Lopetegui used to be the uh, under 21 uh, coach, so uh, I'm pretty curious about the, the upcoming uh, year, uh, two years, because I think there's a lot of things uh, they're going to change in the, in Spain. Certainly wouldn't go as far as saying Iniesta is on his last leg, so he's brilliant last last season and in the Euros as well. Um, but Coque Busquets Iniesta, it doesn't leave much space for Thiago or Saul. Yeah, but one of the I think in the last couple of years we were expecting way more from Thiago. Um, I was expect at least I was expecting to him to to be. Uh, a, a new uh, number eight in uh, in the Spanish squad, and uh, Del Bosque tried him uh, quite a few times, and it, it didn't work. So that's one of the interesting challenges for for Lopetegui, uh, bringing Thiago into the team. There's also Denis Suarez, which I particularly like. is 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 he is a great player, and. Uh, is going to be probably the natural substitute for Iniesta in the, the next years. I'm really curious about that. 
Elsewhere, there was no Cristiano Ronaldo, no Renato Sanchez and no win for the European champions against Switzerland. Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I was expecting that. Um, yeah. Judging by the uh, match against Gibraltar, which... Uh, it was terrible. It was a terrible match. Um, I, I was uh, writing a piece uh, about the upcoming matches, this uh, international roundup. And uh, when I was writing about Portugal, I said, okay, the party is over. It's time to work. Apparently, that was not the, the, the case because the, the whole match against Gibraltar was like a big celebration of the title. Uh, it was played uh, up north uh, at in Porto uh, at the Estadio do Bessa. And um, the lack of organization during the whole match, uh, the lack of uh, goals and focus during the match was really alarming. And I thought, okay, mm, this doesn't look really, really bright. And uh, the first five to ten minutes with Switzerland, the team was quite a ride. But then all the problems that we saw against Gibraltar, and I'm talking about an amateur team, uh, they they happen again against against Switzerland, but Switzerland is a they're a good team. They're really big contenders in my opinion. And um, if you do the stupid mistakes against a team like Switzerland, you're going to pay for that, and that's what happened. Um, Germany three 0 over Norway. They're getting their title defense off with a win. Not much to see there, is there really? No, Germany have actually made a, a pretty good. Uh, they've responded quite well um, post Euros. It's sort of a weird phase for Germany now because you certainly couldn't describe it as transitional. If you look at who's going to be there in two years, the nucleus of the squad, Neuer, Hummels, Boateng, Kroos, Kadira, will all be there. But um, Löw has had a... In, in these two games, at least, has had a real penchant for trying some some youngsters that have been around for a while, but perhaps have only had fleeting appearances. Max Meyer, Kimmich, um, guys like this, Julian uh, Julian Brunt as well. Um, so it's actually quite an exciting time, and it, it feels like it is a transition, but it's not. Um, it's sort of a weird little um, period for Germany, but pretty positive and easy start to to qualify. And they've got a new captain. They do, yeah. Manuel Neuer. Yeah, exactly. So there's a bit of speculation um, about uh, a few other candidates. I think Boateng uh, was was mooted as, as one of the, the more popular ones. There was a, a, a quite a political push behind that, I think. Um, I, I don't think anyone would uh, deny that, that Boateng would make a good captain, but um, in terms of from an outside point of view, Neuer was the clear um the clear candidate for me. Um, he's, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Boateng's a great captain, but he doesn't captain uh, uh, Bayern. Mm-hmm. You know, Neuer will do that when, when Lam hangs up the, the armband permanently. Um, and I think uh, it's it's the logical decision for, for Germany to go with Neuer. He's still going to be around for another you know eight years as well, probably. To me, goalkeepers are always a bit too isolated to be good captains. Yeah, but Same way with a striker. I would always have a midfielder or a defender, somebody through the middle. Perhaps normal goalkeepers, but uh, we also <laughs> know that Neuer plays basically as a fifth defender or a fourth defender, so um, I think he's up the field enough to uh, to to have that sort of leadership. Yeah, Oli Cohen was a good good captain for Germany as yeah, well. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and There have been yeah, some yeah. good ones. Um, Mark Schwarzer for Australia was a good was a good captain as well um, and certainly didn't spend any more, anywhere near as much time up the pitch as Neuer will. So um, <laughs> I think Neuer for me, and Lewis, you, you probably have, have looked at this closely as well, Neuer for me was the, the clear choice. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but beyond him, it's beyond, between uh, probably Boateng and Hummels. Um, as you say, Boateng doesn't have the experience 
Hummels doesn't have the form, maybe. Uh, yeah. And Neuer, I think he's already capped in Germany over 10 times when Schweinsteiger's not played or Lahm didn't play yeah. over the last few years. So it seemed like a really natural progression. Yeah, I also think Hummels' leadership skills were appreciated a lot at Dortmund, but haven't necessarily mm. been so for his international um, team. I, I'm not sure if Löw sees him as a natural leader like he does Neuer. Did we want to get into the any other business section? Which is really going to be our Kosovo section. Kosovo, right. which you wanted to talk about. Oh, a I just, bit. yeah, I just wanted to, and, and Lewis again can chip in on this one. Um, it's been an interesting week, um, a great week for Kosovo, who played their first um, international um, against Finland. Um, but it was just an incredible story that up until three hours before kickoff, there were you know eight players who didn't so know they if, were, if they, they were could... winning for um, yeah the OK the, from FIFA. It was six six players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah three hours so, before including the, the hero of the hour, Valon Barisha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whose who's brother chose to actually remain with with Norway um, as an international player as well. So um, it's actually. You know, it's not the only sibling issue that that has gone on here. Granit Xhaka, of course, um, looks like he'll remain with Switzerland despite having actually intimated that he would change. But FIFA sort of screwed the pooch a little bit on this one and and, um, really didn't let anyone know, or at least it wasn't widely known, that players who played for nations in the Euros would find it hard or would, would not be granted um, permission to change nations after. So um, Kosovo, as a consequence, have potentially missed out on Shaka, Barami and Shakiri. And there's a little bit of mixed messages about the Shaka one in particular this week. Um, people saying he'd sort of gone back on his or, on his decision to, to go across to Kosovo, but in a statement that he released only in, in, um, in his native tongue in Albanian, I think, yeah, um, he sort of said that it was out of his hands, um, and it's that's a real shame because it, this ha- is a really is it's a great story, and um, it's like FIFA have sort of put it in the too hard basket and then washed their hands of it a little bit, and uh, it's a shame because I think uh, you know if if these guys had wanted to play for Kosovo, then they should have been allowed to. FIFA washing their hands of important yeah. decisions, <laughs> sticking uh, their head t- in the sand. That's yeah. totally out of character. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Germany, there are some interesting games this week as the league football comes back to life. Shall we start with Schalke against Bayern Munich? Bayern got off to a cracking start, of course. Surprise. 6-0 win over Bremen. <laughs> but Schalke lost 1-0 to 10-man Frankfurt. So we all know how this is going to end, don't we? Do tell. <laughs> My guess would be a Bayern Munich thunking of Schalke. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, um, Schalke recruited, at least from face value, quite positively over this summer. And um, they could end up having a an all ex Tottenham midfield um, against, close to it. Yeah, yeah. against um, against Bayern, which will make them a pretty tough prospect for for Bayern to counter. Mbolo, um, of course, is a little bit of a wild card that they've they've brought in over the summer. Scored for um, scored for Switzerland in in the win against um, Portugal. And so I think if Schalke can click. Um, th- you know, they'll probably provide a bit of a test to Bayern, but there's also no evidence that they'll click this week. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Will we be seeing Hanado Sanch in a Bayern jersey for the first time? Reports are that we will. Um, That's exciting. It is exciting. I mean, uh, you know, um, Andre can obviously tell us a bit more about Sanch, but we all saw him during the um, during the Euros as well, and he's just uh, he's a little bundle of energy and excitement. We could potentially <laughs> also be seeing Mario Gomez in a Wolfsburg jersey. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. cool round, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very exciting weekend. More yes, exciting, is. though, will be if we see Mario Goethe in a uh, 
in a Dortmund jersey. I mean, he's fit enough to play for Germany. He should be fit enough to play for Dortmund, right? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even on the bench for Dortmund for the first match day of the season, um, despite being called up on the Friday for the national team. Uh, Thomas Tuchel was kind of asked if that was a good idea and encouraged Joachim Löw to play him. Obviously, Goetze didn't have a full pre-season coming off the back of the Euros. It was only a small sort of muscle issue that kept him out of the, the first match day against Mainz. So Tuchel encouraged Löw to use him. He did. He started both games over the international break. Um, and he, he didn't play very well. He didn't play in position and there's been a lot of criticism in Germany again of Goetz's performances but he keeps starting up front for Germany when there isn't another striker and it's sort of carrying the burden of that whether or not we see him for Dortmund this weekend probably from the bench um, but he could start Shinji Kagawa's had a long way to go to play for Japan this week so yeah he, he certainly could play in Leipzig and I would say also Kagawa has had his opportunities in Goetz's absence for the first couple of games of the season and uh, probably hasn't disappointed, but he hasn't really done anything to say this position is mine. And, um, you mentioned obviously Goetze playing as a as a false nine for, for Germany. Um, this is actually going to be a bit exciting because he'll if he starts, he'll have Aubameyang in front of him, Schuller on one side and Dembele on the other. So um, I think a lot of people would love to play as a 10 um, with those players around him, so this is uh, this is a really good opportunity for Goethe. I think these next couple of couple of weeks to see exactly where he's at. Be the first time the Red Bull Arena sees Bundesliga action. Huzzah! <laughs> Download One Football, the most comprehensive football app in the world. Now, this weekend brings us the biggest game of the season so far as Pep Guardiola's Manchester City take the short trip across the city to Old Trafford to face Josie Marino's Manchester United. Joining us to talk about that is Jordan Elgott from City Watch. Jordan, the biggest talking point about this is that Guardiola will be out Sergio Aguero after the striker was banned for three games. Can Pep have any arguments with that? Uh, I don't think so. I think Aguero only has himself to blame, really. He's got a history of showing a bit of petulance with had that stamp on David Luiz in the past. He's avoided a ban for a very bad tackle on Mark Noble. And as a City fan, I was incredibly frustrated with Aguero. I, I love the guy, but in all honesty, Aguero only has himself to blame and it- it'll be a huge miss for him. How, um, how will Pep cope without him? Will Iheanacho be the straight swap or will he play Sterling through the middle or maybe Sané in the false nine? Um, Iheanacho would be the logical guess, but trying to second guess Pep Guardiola is a very tough task. So, I really wouldn't be surprised to see someone like maybe even Nolito, who's got a very good goal-scoring record in the past and started well for City. Wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe in a false nine or just an out-and-out striker role. Um, I think the game will come a bit too soon for Leroy Sané. He might be fit, but I think Guardiola will be reluctant to throw him in in this game because that'll be a tough, a tough task for him, a bit of a baptism of fire. Um, Sterling, I think he'll keep him on the wing because... He's been playing very well there and I don't think he'll want to change that. But Ian Acho would probably be, be the logical guess. He scored a very good goal midweek for Nigeria against Tanzania. He's been in good form and played well whenever he came on. He, he had a great cameo against Stoke, uh, came on and got uh, an assist and the assist of an assist. Um, and yeah, so I, I said Ian Acho would be logical, but it's in anyone's guess what Guardiola will choose. From a City perspective, where do you see the game being won and lost? Um, there's a few areas, really. Before the game, I think it'll be interesting to see which players on both sides come back quick enough from international duty because 
there's some key players who may be missing. For United, Antonio Valencia doesn't get back until Friday lunchtime, just 24 hours before the game starts. And missing him would be a big blow. Luke Shaw was pulled out from international duty with injury. And once again, going from Luke Shaw to Marcos Rojo for Manchester United would be a very big blow for them. And also, also on the City side, um, Nicolas Otamendi and Pablo Zabaleta won't be returning until the same time that Valencia does. And Otamendi would be a huge blow. I, I mean, I know John Stones and Alex Kolarov have started very well under Guardiola, but I'm not sure how much I fancied them against Vlasan Ibrahimovic. Um, in terms of in the game, I think United will play on the counter and look to exploit any, any gaps which Guardiola's sides leave. Um, I think also it will depend on whether City players play the game or play the occasion. As I said earlier, Raheem Sterling's been great for us so far, but there will be lingering issues over his confidence. And when he's got 70,000 people booing him rigorously for 90 minutes, I think that'll be a big test of his character and probably a key to City's success in this game is Sterling's form on the pitch. So those are the areas where I think we could see some differences in the team. Jordan, it's obviously been a big summer for City in terms of the ins and the outs, but I mean, obviously the same can be said um, for United. As a City fan, how have you sort of gauged the feeling around United um, after this summer? There's obviously a, a lot of optimism, some spring in the step, but I mean, you know, you probably have colleagues or friends that are United fans. As a City fan, how do you sort of see that, that optimism so far? Yeah, I definitely agree that United are a completely different prospect now. The fear factor is that if you look at the team going into this week, weekend and the teams that they've had in the past under Moyes and Van Gaal, they've now got players that can actually hurt us. Previously, the only players that could hurt us in the Manchester Derby were an outperform Wayne Rooney and now they've got some of the world's best players. I mean, Paul Pogba has to be a worry. Stefan Ibrahimovic scores goals wherever he goes. He's won titles wherever he's been. So I think United fans are rightful to be optimistic. We've got a very good manager now, but they're also competing in one of the toughest Premier Leagues in history because other teams are just as optimistic and rightfully so. Manchester City, in my opinion, I might be a little bit biased, but we've got the best manager in the world. Liverpool are showing a bit of resurgence under Klopp and looking like they'll get it, although they did have that terrible loss to Burnley. And... I think a top three finish for United is the absolute minimum based on who they've signed, the, the amount of money they've spent and also just the quality of their squad now. Um, but whether they'll win the league, I think, is up for debate. If you throw in uh, Mourinho and Pep and the rivalry that they have, is this the most anticipated Manchester derby for, for quite some time? Uh, probably since, I'd say, the, the season which City first won the league in 2011-2012 when we had the uh, 6-1 and also that Vincent Company header to uh, throw the pendulum back in City's favour. Um, under the past two or three years, City and United have both been stagnating under what I would say uh, second-rate managers like in Van Gaal and Pellegrini. It's been a bit of a drab affair. There's not really been those pre-match derby nerves which City fans and United fans usually get. And with the Guardiola and Mourinho rivalry, that adds a bit more fire to the situation and definitely I think that'll be getting opposition fans more pumped up and we'll see in the, the press conferences tomorrow lunchtime. I'm sure there'll be a few mind games going on, a few 
comments thrown about uh, about things in the past. And yeah, definitely, I'd, I'd probably say that it is the most anticipated Manchester derby since that 2012 and 2011 season. How have you found uh, life under Pep so far? Raheem Sterling certainly seems to be enjoying it. Joe Hart less so. Yeah, um, I love it. At the moment, I've got absolute blind faith in Pep. I'm happy to do, like, to go along with whatever he wants to do. He, he just He's the best manager in the world, in my opinion, and it just makes such a change. I, I, Manuel Pellegrini is a very nice man and he did an all right job, but he just wasn't good enough for where we needed to be and where we needed to be going at the football club. Um, the Joe Hart situation has split fans down the middle. I always liked Hart as a person, but I wasn't blind to his flaws. And it's his distribution which has probably seen him out the door. But there are also flaws on his left-hand side. And overall, I think they have made the right decision on the pitch. But as you say, Raheem Sterling has been absolutely fantastic. He looks a player revitalised, reborn. And he's now looking like the player that we paid £50 million for from Liverpool as opposed to that shadow of the player we saw at the back end of last season and in the Euros. All right, Jordan, uh, one last question before we let you go. Uh, your prediction for the game? I'm quite a pessimistic City fan, so I won't go over the top, especially in a game like this where it could come back to bite me. I'll go for a one-all draw. That was Jordan Elgott from City Watch. I was about to call him Jordan Belfer. Jordan <laughs> Belfer, obviously somebody very different. And I'm sure he leads a very different life from Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, he's going for a pessimistic Manchester City perspective, 1-1 draw. I'm kind of with him. I don't think this is going to be a good game. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've grown used to, in the last few years, Premier League, big Premier League games um, being quite underwhelming because um, another team... Teams would rather not lose than win. In the hype, most cases. the hype outweighs the quality. Exactly. So, but I actually think I think City might edge this. Um, really? I don't, I don't think one one's a bad call, but I think it might be a one nil or a two one. I think, I think United are probably going to have a few holes poked in them. Andre, um, I'm think it's going to be a draw. Honestly, um, I'm not really convinced with the United so far. Uh, they're being very practical at the. So far, in, in uh, with a typical Mourinho style, things are working pretty well for them. But I'm still not convinced with the old style of the team. And uh, City, without Aguero, is a very different city. But I really trust the kid. I, I think that Ineacho is a, a great, great prospect. Lewis, you're nodding your head in agreement. Yeah, I again, I'm going to go with a draw, but... I would lean towards City if I had to pick a winner. Um, uh, they have been more convincing than United so far this season. We we won't see a, a crazy game like that 6-1 game that Jordan mentioned. Like, Mourinho's first Clasico was a, an absolute run over for Barcelona. Um, he, he won't let that happen. And he would probably you know if the game was tight he would take a, a tight nil nil even a one nil loss rather than destroying the whole season by going for it um so yeah it's going to be close it will be cagey 
but if anyone's gonna gonna open someone else up, I think it'll be City, even without Aguero, unless United can catch him on the break. It's really, really gonna be tight. Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks as ever to Paddy, Lewis, Andre, Jordan from City Watch, and our producer Damien. If you have any questions for next week or want to get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at One Football. Thanks for listening. I love you.